0: I'm sorry for my high E's, it gets a little shady up there when I try to go up that high. Um, we've been uh, starting up with the Apostles' Creed and getting into the meat of it at this point. Uh, we are talking about uh, God the Father at this point, um, and let me just kind of get straight to it. Uh, last week we dealt with questions 36 and 37, and then on to 38, so we'll uh, keep going up with uh, page 36 on question 39. Why do you call the first of the three divine persons Father? Our Lord Jesus Christ is the only divine Son of the Father. He called God Father and taught his disciples to do the same. God gives believers his Holy Spirit and adopts us as his children, enabling us to call him Father. Uh, I said a little bit about this last week, but uh, this is. One of my really one of my favorite parts of the Catechism was when it starts to talk about the the joy of adoption. Um, this is this is really at the heart of the um, I don't know if I want to call it reasoning, but but the use of the word Father over any other word that could be used has specifically. Uh, to do with this understanding of adoption and also the sonship of Jesus. Um, one of the things that I do want to say at this point is that uh, for many people, this kind of idea that God could have any kind of gender whatsoever is offensive. Um, I want to be really clear about this because actually the words we use are really important. Um, it's not to say that the Godhead has gender per se, right? That's not the point. Um, it actually refers to the, the, the distance between God and creation, um, something that we that we really miss is that in ancient religions, um, the the female deity um, is very interesting, very very, uh, very uh, well. Uh, in a lot of ways, you know, some of the ancient religions are very racy religions, right? It's just, it's very sexy, um, and part of it is that you when you think about things like that, you know, Astarte or or um, um, you know some of these some of these Canaanite deities, right? they give birth to the world out of their, out of their womb, right? And so the, the world shares in the divinity of the female deity, which is why you start to see things like, you know, uh, uh, fertility cults spring up, right? It's like everything's about fertility, right? Um, but but the, the revelation that we see in Holy Scripture is of God in a different sense, not this female deity who gives birth to the world, but a God who creates by his word, um, and that's not, that's not something that you can just sort of dispense with and keep, the, keep basic Christian theology intact, right? Because there's something being said in this that's really key. Um, I think a lot of people are really quick to say, well, let's dispense with all those pronouns and all those you know, disaster kind of patriarchal sort of things. It's like, oh, slow up just a second. Like, there's more being said here than just, some, than just a message about gender. That's not the point. Um, the point is actually about the relationship to creation. In addition to that, it's something that's really key uh, and, and something we, we really miss, which is that, um, yes, let's just say it, like Roman the Roman world is patriarchal. <laughs> like, and, and it's in that Roman world that these understandings of adoption are so keenly stated, right? Because it's the father of the family that does the adopting. Um, it's the father of the family that extends membership in this enlarged family to others, um, of all kinds, actually. So we have all these wonderful accounts in the ancient world of, you know, look, Roman emperors who became emperor for no other reason than they were adopted by the previous emperor. right? <laughs> because that emperor liked him and said, well, I think I'd like to make you my son. And, you know, that's it, right? Um, but it's, it's an image of how the, the family was structured in those times. Um, but I also think that, it, that it's something very keenly set up, right? That, that, there are all, that these analogies are used in scripture to describe what it is to become a child of God. Um, it's, it's through this adoption into the household of God. Um, and that's, that's a big thing. So I want you to see that. But we say here that our Lord Jesus Christ is the only divine son of the Father. Well, what does it mean for God to have a son? Does it mean there's two gods? Like this is the thing, I, I mean, I can't uh, sort of, I can't have a son who isn't of like nature with me, right? I can't sort of like give birth to apple. I can't conceive apple. Like, that doesn't work. Um, I, can only, I can only give birth to something of, light, of like nature with me, right? That's all I can do. Um, I can only um, beget something of like nature with me. Um, so the understanding is that by eternally begetting the Son, God continually bring, God the Father brings continually forth this begotten Son, Jesus, um, who is of like nature. Nature and like and and not just like substance, actually the same nature and the same substance as the Father. That's the key. Okay, we shouldn't say like. Like's heresy. Okay, so um, he called God Father and taught his disciples to do the same. God gives believers this Holy Spirit and adopts us as His children, enabling us to call Him Father. Um, I mentioned this last week, but I love what Saint Augustine says about this. That um, in his preaching on the Lord's Prayer, he says, you know, that God the Father is not like earthly fathers. You know, if I find out I'm gonna have another kid, uh, it's like, oh. (laughs) Because right now it's seven. To go to to eight would be like, oh, gosh. Uh, But, and I'm just being honest with you, that's like the the way it works, and and, uh, and, you know, there's obviously joy when you find out you're gonna have a baby, right? Some of you know this personally, but what also goes on? It's like, ugh, now we're in trouble. Um, But Augustine says, God's not like that because uh, because you know to have another child doesn't cost him any more, right? It's just it's just of course there's room, right? <laughs> and 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 what what Augustine envisions is Jesus on the cross, like looking up to the Father and saying, "Do you think you have room for one more?" And the answer is always yes. Um, and so that's a really important part of this is is uh, is this um, this capacity for adoption that the Father has. Um, Why do you mean, what do you mean when you call God Father? When I call God Father, I declare that I was created for a relationship with Him, that I trust in God as my protector and provider, and that I put my hope in God as His child and heir in Christ. This is a declaration uh, in calling God Father in the Creed uh, that we're made for a relationship, right? So think about this for a moment. Can you be a father without a relationship? Like, even if you're estranged from your father, what do you, what do you have? There's a relationship, right? You, you are a child of the father, right? That, that can't change. Um, and through this, I declare that this is the, this is the relationship that I was made for, um, that I trust in God as my protector and provider. Um, this is another part that's really just sort of hard for us to swallow, but to be a member of a household in the ancient world Meant very clearly that you trust in the head of the household. I know this is all very archaic language, <laughs> for your daily bread, right? For everything, that's the reality that you have. Um, now you might have some income, but it, where does it go? It all goes to the it all goes to the household. Um, keep in mind that in the ancient world, households were as many as 50 to 100 people at a time living under one in one household together. Um, and this is actually where we get uh, uh, some of the language that the bishops use about their their households, right? So they speak of uh, kind of their household being where, uh, for instance, clergy are formed, right, is in the household. That's where seminaries come from. So it's from this, one, like, it's the bishop's household. Um, things like the word parish, it means it's from the Greek paroikia, which means out of or from the household. Like, that's the language, right? It's it's okay, well, you've been living here for a while, it's time for you to go and go out from the household and start a new household, right? That's kind of how it works. Um, So parishes are always like that. Um, But this is the language that's continually used. It's to show us that we are heirs in Christ. Okay, why do you call God the Father Almighty? I call the Father Almighty because he has power over everything and accomplishes everything he wills. Together with his Son and Holy Spirit, the Father is all-knowing and ever-present in every place. All right, I'm just going to leave that one at that. Why do you call God the Father creator? I call God the Father creator because he made all things. He creates and sustains all things through his word and gives life to all creatures through his spirit. This is a thing that might shock you, but we kind of take this for granted that if there is a God, he probably created everything, right? That's kind of like a given for us. Uh, but ancient people were not so. They believed in pre-existent matter, which is sort of a wild idea, but it's, you know, stick with it. Um, it's this idea that like the gods aren't so powerful as to create things out of nothing. They can only sort of take it and do stuff with it. Um, but the Christian claim in the ancient world, which is so powerful, and it's something the church fathers are constantly on, is, is how God makes everything out of nothing, this kind of idea of ex nihilo, that God creates everything, makes all things. He creates and sustains all things through his word. So not only do we believe that God made everything, right, because you could be a, uh, uh, you could be a deist and believe that, right? but that all of creation, everything that exists, is sustained by his eternal word. Um, and I would even put it in, in deeper terms, which is that the whole world is gaining constantly its existence and its continued existence through the person of Jesus Christ. So like, consider that for a moment. That, that, that the the very person that you are sustained by are the one is the one that you're saved by, right? The one you're redeemed by. Um, because that's how the world was created, right? Um, this is what ancient Christians believed. Actually, it's right there in the it's right there in the scriptures, right? All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. That's uh, John one. All right. And gives life to all creatures through his spirit. So this is kind of a, a Trinitarian look at how creation is made, uh, sustained, and given life. Um, these are not to be sort of like held in these categories, but I think it's really important to note that, that there is a kind of life, right, which is imparted by the Holy Spirit uh, that uh, is not just a physical life, but also um, a, a spiritual life, a hidden life. Um, and that, that is to say that, you know, look, if I go to a doctor and I'm dying, why is the doctor gonna say that I'm dying? Like, you are diseased, my son, my my, my friend, and you have something that is gonna eventually lead to one of two things. Either your brain's gonna stop functioning or your heart's gonna stop. Or maybe your kidneys shut down, that would be another one. But that's gonna to lead to your heart stopping, right? And to your brain shutting down. Got it? Like that's it. Those are, the, those are the possibilities. That's they're speaking merely to the physical life. But uh, Christians believe that the that the world is sustained by God in this way. But also that that there's a there's a kind of life which we have which subsists in the Holy Spirit. Actually, um, C.S. Lewis talks about these two things as as two different kinds of life. Zoe, which is where we get the word zoo, right? That's just sort of life. And then uh, what's the other word? Good gracious, why can't I remember it? Bios is the other one. That's kind of like it's a it's a different kind of life. It's a, it's a sort of elevated life, um, and these are important, right? Because the, the the relationship between these two actually show us something even of the gospel, right? That that it's not enough, you know. Jesus saying, "Man shall not live by what bread alone, but by what every word that proceeds from the mouth of God." So he he's just speaking to the very relation of creation to the world or to God, actually. Um, so there's that. How does recognizing God as creator inform your understanding of his creation? I acknowledge that God created for his own glory everything that exists. He created human beings, male and female, in his image, and appointed us stewards of creation. God's creation is thus a gift to enjoy as we work and care for it. Um, so not only do we acknowledge that God made everything that exists for his own glory, but also uh, that human beings were made in his image. Um, and not only that, but to be uh, stewards of creation. So one of the things that we don't quite get is what glory actually means uh, in the biblical perspective. Um, and I'm reminded of what uh, what uh, N.T. Wright says about glory. Glory is a kind of um, mastery over creation, Right? It's not just sort of like, oh, God is so glorious, you know, it's like, okay, fine, but, but what does that mean? Um, it, it says something about how God relates to creation, which is that he's over it, that he has mastery over it, um, that he can not only make, but, uh, but remake, refashion, like he can stop things, start things, all those things, right? He's got total mastery over creation. Um, to be made in the image of God means that we're made to be like... Um, like God in that sense um, I love what, I love what Jim Packer would always say about this to be made in the image of God means that we were made to be like Jesus right and, and the Christian understanding of, of redemption that's actually the ultimate thing in redemption is to be with Jesus at the right hand of the Father. that's about as that's about as clear as it can be right that to be to be in Christ means to be seated in heavenly places as Paul writes uh, to the church in Ephesus and um, but what does that mean for us? It means that we're that we're appointed to be stewards of creation. Um, and so there's something. Well, I would I would take it really far on this one, right? I'd say, like, every time you make a sandwich, right, you're exercising this kind of glory in creation. Every time you care for your dog or your cat, you're doing this. Like, um, I don't really like cats, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you that one as a pass. So if you care for your cat, you're being a steward of creation, right? Um, Uh, All those things are so key. Uh, And so Christians have understood that, that their work, right, whatever work that is, is actually to participate in the divine life of God. So this is something that a lot of people miss today because we get very tied to our lovely little secular and sacred categories. It's like, what I'm doing in here is holy, what I'm doing out there is not. And Christians have pushed back against that, traditionally anyway, by saying, no, 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 it's all holy. Like, <laughs> it's all important, it's all, it's all a work within creation, and it all matters, right? Um, and I think that's a really important thing, It's to say that um, that there isn't a sort of dichotomy between those things that really matter and those things that really don't. Because what? If it exists, it exists within creation, right? Which is actually, I should say this, creation is not just things visible, but things invisible as well. So, I mean, we have to really kind of come back to this um, and really understand it better. All right. Uh, God's creation is thus a gift to enjoy as we work and care for it. Uh, So not only are we given creation as a gift, but it's a gift to enjoy. Um, What does it mean to enjoy uh, creation? Does it mean, like, you can go camping and that's really fun? <laughs> well, I, you know, look, I get it. I love camping, too. But there's this kind of, there's this kind of, uh, I don't know. I, and I, I'm on Instagram, so I see this regularly. It's this kind of exaltation of mountain living, right? Like, of backpacking constantly is the kind of high and exalted life. And And I think when I see that, it's like, oh, I love mountains as much as the next guy, but it's also really tiring to do backpacking constantly. So like, but but what does it say? Well, there's also, there should be enjoyment in the mundane too, right? Um, I think there's this kind of pursuit of the highest possible things in creation is those things that you can enjoy. And that's not always the case, right? I think we have to be a little bit more careful about this. It's like, you know, like a Big Mac can be as enjoyable as... A five thousand dollar burger with gold leaf on it. I mean, probably even more so in a certain sense. Um, but but the reality of it too is that um, that there are there is order in creation. There is such a thing as good, better, and best. Um, all of those things are real, um, and they uh, it, it means that as we work and care in as we exercise work and care and creation um, to even better it. Right that's something that's almost been completely lost, is you know we're not farmers, so we don't really quite think about like what's it like to make land better? (laughs) But farmers are constantly thinking about this. It's really important, like how do you enrich the soil? How do you make your land better? Um, But that's actually something that does fall to us as as this kind of participation in the glory of God, is to make the land better. Um, We have to think about it in more abstract ways, like how do I make my business better for the glory of God, right? and as a steward in creation. Um, uh, That's a really big key uh, concept there. Okay, what does it mean that God created both heaven and earth? It means that all things, whether visible or invisible, physical or spiritual, were brought into being out of nothing by the word of the eternal God. I love this. This is such a clear, like, statement of what this means. The Nicene Creed, uh, in its traditional form, which we don't say on, on Sunday mornings, which is sort of Uh, sad, but we say uh, things visible and invisible, right? The traditional creed says things visible and invisible, things seen and unseen, which are actually four separate categories for the created order. Um, Things visible and invisible means whether I can see it or not, so like whether it's possible to see it or whether it is impossible to see it. Seen and unseen are the things that I see and also the things that I don't see but could see. Does that make sense? Um, so there's this, there's this accounting for all of creation under those four headings. Um, and I love that because it speaks to, uh, again, this, this uh, the, the coherence of all creation, right? There's, an in, there's, a, there's a coherence between the visible and the invisible, the seen and the unseen, which we don't think about, do we? Because we're modern people, and the only things that exist for modern people are what? I have to either lick it, hear it, like touch it, or, or smell it, right? Otherwise, it probably doesn't exist. Um, but consider for a moment that that's a very new way of seeing the world. Um, uh, and, and I can actually really pretty well explain that to you, right? I mean, look, look at the Stations of the Cross for a moment, these, these images on the walls. Um, what do they point to? Are they just the bare image? Because what's there is plaster, let's be clear about that. It's plaster, it's painted, it's pretty, right? What's it pointing to? Like a, gr- a greater reality, right? And not just a historic event, but something bigger than that, right? Um, because there's no such thing as a merely historical event, is there? There's always that which is going on in creation, which is both seen and unseen. So in all these things, there are invisible things, right? I mean, consider it that we have, uh, let's see, um, uh, well, Jesus is laden with a cross. Okay? What's going on there? Just the historic Jesus putting a cross on his shoulder and walking off with it? Or something, something greater? Um, and I think we can certainly speak of something greater going on behind that. Um, This is why some of those discussions of, like, the historical Jesus for you New Testament people is, like, such a disaster. It's because that only works within a modern frame, right? It only works within the kind of imminent frame of life. You have to think way beyond that. It's like, yeah, but there's so much more going on. Uh, So, anyway, I'm not selling you anything you don't already know, but that's the reality, right? We have to to kind of stick with that. Um, Why? Well, because we believe in God, right? Like... (laughs) It's it's really not complicated, right? It's really hard to be a modernist and believe in God. Um, I would even say pretty much impossible to be a, a modern materialist and, and believe in God at all. Actually, um, there are some who claim to be materialistic Christians, and I just sort of say like, I don't even know what I don't even know where to start, man. Like <laughs> that's that's all there is to it. Um, but here it is. And this speaks to the goodness in creation, this next one, Uh, but I want to go back a little bit here, which is that all of these things, whether visible or invisible, physical or spiritual, were brought into being out of nothing. Again, this reference to that Latin phrase, ex nihilo, out of nothing by the word of the eternal God, which again is the sort of creative word of God, which proceeds from, I should say, God's mouth, right? Right? is that creating word that goes forth and actually uh, makes, creates. Now, that's really different from us, right? Because I have a kind of verbal relationship with my Alexa, right? But I'm not making anything by speaking to her. Why? Well, that's because there's something that is differentiated between my word and my will. And not only that, but the capacity of my will. And one of the things we have to get about God the Father is that there actually is no distinction between his word, his will, and his capacity. They all work together as one, meaning what God speaks is, um, what God wills is, um, and, and this means that, I mean, this is why I'm a classic theist above just basically every other category is like, because it's just not that complicated right it's we make it complicated because we want to add other sort of like usually human attributes uh to god okay was the world that god created good yes god created all things and called them very good Um, however through sin evil and death have come into this world and corrupted it now i want to be clear about that uh very good is uh is is a phrase used about human life actually um human life is very good um, it's sort of exceedingly good. Um, why would God say about human life that it's exceedingly good above all other parts of creation? I think it's created in his image, right? It's, there's something differentiated about human life. Um, in his image he created the male and female he created them. There's a, there's a, uh, a showing forth of uh, the very nature of God in human life. Um, another way to put it is is a kind of way that John Paul II speaks about it, which is like that our bodies actually show us God. Now, does God have arms and legs and appendages of other kinds? That's a, that's kind of a trick question. God the Father does not, but God the Son does, like as a human being, absolutely. Like, So do you see this in a relationship? It's that actually when we speak about being made in the image of God, it's a relational statement, not a... Uh, a kind of resemblance question. Does that make sense? Um, okay, however, and this is the downfall, and that's a little bit of the opening up of the questions of sin, evil, and death, but it's through these things, um, through sin, evil and death have come into this world and corrupted it. So, the Christian teaching on the status of creation is not Uh, that it was always evil and will always be evil and will always be distracting you from the truly good things in the world, which are not seen, right? That's Gnosticism, right? (laughs) Uh, But that the the world is created good and is corrupted. Um, One way to put that, I would say, is something like this. Um, Do you remember years ago, there was was a, a Spanish art restorer who took an image of Jesus and basically trashed it? Um, and they made fun of this on Saturday Night Live, and it was just a riot, total scream. Um, and just look it up, right? It's just so amazing because it's so funny. Uh, but, but she botched it. She botched it completely. It was awful. Um, and and it's not like it was, right? But it's also not like it could be because it's not beautiful. It's, there's, something, there's something that has broken down in it. Um, it becomes almost cartoonish, almost like the image becomes funny. Um, that's kind of the image that I would often say, turn to when you think about creation, right? Is it good? Emphatically so, right? It's good. But is it bent in a way that sort of brings out some pretty um, hilarious kind of contradictions? Absolutely. Do we find paradoxes within this world? Yes. Do we find all these struggles within this world? Yes. Do people die within this world? Yes. Um, do, do we see all kinds of, all horrific problems? Like, you know, birth defects is one. Um, uh, it's just an amazing thing that we that we can often just be led to ignore because we actually experience the burden of creation every day. Like, um, Look, I, ex- I experience sin and death when I have to get out of bed in the morning and my body being 41 years old doesn't work like it used to there's no springing out of bed for me anymore I mean I have to go okay all right let's do this <laughs> and, and it's painful it's miserable and some of you know what I'm talking about but but that's it's hard right and you and you experience frailty um, and so the language that we use for the fall is a, is a language of corruption Um It's not to say that it was created evil or that it was even created to be evil eventually, but that it was corrupted at a fundamental level by sin. sin. So now we'll go to the next one. If God created the world good, why do we sin? Adam and Eve rebelled against God, thus bringing upon all humanity pain, toil, alienation from God and each other and death. I have inherited this fallen and corrupted human nature. Consequently, I too sin and fall short of God's glory. There, there are many today who say, "Well, you know, like, uh, we all know that there's evil in this world. But what if there wasn't? Like, what if it wasn't that way? We would be much more apt to believe in a living God if that were the case than if it's than if it wasn't. And it's sort of like, well, I mean, I understand what you're saying, but but here's the problem: like, you you want to believe in the inherent goodness of creation, and yet you're everything you see tells you you can't really believe in that. Not, not adequately. So what do you have to do? Well you have two options. You can either believe that it was corrupted, right? By, by some external force or just me, right? <laughs> and maybe just me as a stand-in for all humanity, right? Um, or you have to say, this was just the way things were created and that really sucks and I'm really upset about that and angry. Um, or this is just a completely orphaned creation that has nothing to do. There's no God. There's none of that going on. Um, so I really do think these are kind of the, these are the options, right? Um, and and pretty much people on the whole waver between being total atheists uh, or agnostics, or they're basically gnostics, right? They believe, hey, like the world is either super good and we just don't see it, or it's really bad. And the real things, the things that really exist, are the things I can't see. Um, Or you have the Christian worldview, essentially, which is that everything is uh, corrupted in creation, and yet God God wants to restore it and is working to restore it, even as we speak. Um, And furthermore, and this is the wonderful thing about the gospel, is you say uh, that that he by whom all things were made and through through whom all things continually exist, suffered and died that all things might be redeemed. Okay. So that's like, that's the good news, right? It's that, that as corrupt as this world can be, the one who made it and the one who keeps it going, uh, is is going to restore. Okay. Okay, this is the second sentence here speaks to uh, original sin. Um, I was watching Eddie Azard's hilarious comedy routine uh, that's called Dressed to Kill um, and, and he makes a reference to original sin. It's like, you know, forgive me father, I've beaten a badger with a spoon. And it's like, that's not original sin, right? It's not like you have to come up with a new one. It's, it's this question of where are the origins of sin in the universe, right? Um, where do they come from? Uh, and, and the answer is that, um, essentially this, that I've inherited this condition, I've inherited this fallen nature. Um, and it's at least in part that reason for that reason that I too sin, um, is that I've inherited this corrupted nature. I'll say as well, a lot of the reason I sin is because my will is a mess, right? And I actually want to, I like it, right? Um, but, but even before that is this, is this work of original sin in me, um, I want to say this, that, that uh, Christians are often a little bit sketchy about how they use the language of human nature. We'll say things like, well, humans are sinful by nature. No, we're not. No, we're sinful because of a corrupted nature. Um, I actually made this mistake on my canonical exams when I was out you know, in the middle of seminary, and uh, it did not go well. I mean, my, my, me- my great mentor, who was an uh, you know, Oxford-educated, uh, he had a PhD in from, um, from Keeble College in theology, he, he was very like, no. no. <laughs> well, why? Because it's not human nature that is inherently and by nature sinful, is it? It's fallen. That's what we mean when you say fallen. It's it's corrupted. It's bent. It's whatever, you know, those words are really keenly important here because we don't want to say that God made human nature to be evil or corrupted. That's not the point. Um, and I think... To the extent that you believe that human nature is corrupted by nature um, is is the extent to which you either have a pessimistic worldview, right? Which is that, oh, it's just all trash and it's always going to be trash and that's it. Um, But it also keeps you, and this is really important, it keeps you from just thinking like, oh, but everything's okay. Like, we're all good. I'm okay, you're okay, all of that. What's the better way to put it? I love what Blaise Pascal says. He says, we are the glory and garbage of the universe. I think that's a good way to put original sin, right? Is that we're, we're two things at once. We're monstrous, and we're also like God's favorite thing in all creation. Like <laughs> We are disgusting animals who do all kinds of evil things, and yet God loves us the most, right? Okay, that's the paradox that's, that's inherent in original sin. All right, what are the consequences of sin? Because of sin, those apart from Christ are spiritually dead, separated from God, under his righteous condemnation, and without hope. Um, and that is really the, the thing here, is that um, because of sin, and, and I always hesitate to say spiritually dead because I think that can be misinterpreted, um, but, but it's like this. We experience very real death because of sin. Um, and the way that Christians have spoken about how you get delivered from sin is with the same word: you die to it, you mortify it; it dies in you. Um, well, how do you die with? How do you die to sin? Well, <laughs> the answer is actually found on the cross: it's you. You get crucified with Christ, right? Um, I wish that people would stop saying "I got saved" and say something like what Paul says, which is, "I've been crucified with Christ." Um, or say something like, I have been baptized into Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. Like, that would be far preferable. Because that's actually speaking to what God has done in you to put this old life of sin behind you. Now, you're Christians, most of you, right? Is sin behind you? You're like, why not? <laughs> uh, but, But I want to say this. Yes and no, right? It is behind you. Because... You're not defined by it anymore, um, and yet it still clings closely. Well, what do you do about that? Well, you cling to the grace of God to restore you, to to um, to restore that that broken nature. That's what grace does. Um, and Christians are the ones who have access to grace. I mean, that's the reality of it. Um, and so I just will will tell you that that you know we don't we don't walk as others do who don't have hope, right? Um, so that's that's that. But but. Because of sin, we have to keep in mind that we are dead. Um, you know, think about what Paul says to the Ephesians. At one time, you were dead in your trespasses, alienated from the promises of God. I just quoted that. That's Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. So, yeah, <laughs> it was definitely quoted in the uh, scriptural quotations. Um, but, but without hope. Um I'm going to skip that prayer and we'll kind of move on to Jesus Christ for a moment. I think we've got some time. Good. Um, Question 48. Who is Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ is the eternal Word and Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. He took on human nature to be the Savior and Redeemer of the world, the only mediator between God and fallen humanity. Okay, so Jesus, it, Jesus Christ is the eternal Word and Son of God. Um, if you think of God as being completely eternal, which you should, uh, and the Word eternally proceeding from His mouth, then what does that mean? It means that the Word of God is co-eternal with the Father, um, and uh, and we say Son, meaning what? He is of the same substance as the Father. Right? This, is, this is again, going back, when we, th- when we think about the Nicene Creed, one of the things the Nicene Creed says very clearly, and heretical creeds introduced a bit of a variation on this, which was to say, instead of same substance of the Father, they say like substance of the Father. And that's heresy, it's one little I that changes the whole thing, or an iota in that case. Um, but, but what's being said here? It's being said that the Son can't be of a similar substance of the Father. Because there's only one divine substance. The Son is of the same substance as the Father. Okay. Now, I mean, we can talk a lot about, and there are philosophers in here who could go on at length talking about what substance is, right? Um, but but I think I just need to say this. Uh, in the ancient world, substance is not the material substance. Substance actually refers to uh, the thing that the thing actually is. Okay, It's, it's what it is. Um, so, you know, this is the physical copy of this book. But what is it? It's a book. Right? Well, what's a book? Like, it's got to be something beyond what you can touch. Um, and I think, you know, lest we get into the nitty gritty of, of differences in, in, uh, in ancient metaphysics, you know, I think it's just enough to say that all ancient people believed that things are actually uh, in participation or conformity to something greater than just what you see, touch, and taste, and feel, right? Um, so there's there's what we mean by saying that, that Jesus Christ is the Son of the Father. It means that what he is is God. That's what it means to be the Son of God, is what he is is God. Okay. <laughs> but you also have to say, and this is part of the riddle, is that uh, Jesus Christ is not God the Father, <laughs> right? So <laughs> so that's sort of the fun part, right? Um, and it's hard hard to quite hold that. Um, but the, the best way that I can describe that is, you know, you know how many persons do you have? Hopefully, right? Like, hopefully you're not splitting. Uh, but, but one, hopefully, right? And, and we say, well, you know, there's only one Lee Nelson and he does things and he doesn't do two things at the same time, mostly. Uh, he, you know, he has one person. Um, but when we speak about the persons of the, of the Trinity, we're saying three, um, and this isn't sort of split personalities, it's actually just um, kind of the, the interrelatedness between, um, well, we just have to say it, the persons of God. That's what that's what's going on here. Um, now, there are various you know, ways, I should say this as well, um, there are various ways to think about this. For instance, Augustine imagines God continually speaking, God the Father continually speaking to the God the Son, and that kind of... Um, what you could often call like this eternal sighing of love between the Father and the Son is the Holy Spirit. It's like the breath of their love for each other. Um, that's, that's fine, you know? <laughs> but, but again, it speaks to the relations, right? That's, that's the key. All right. Um, the second person, does this mean that he's less than the first? No, these are just kind of, in, these, are, these are integers, right? They're equal, <laughs> and that's all that means. He took on human nature to be the savior and redeemer of the world, the only mediator between God and fallen humanity. What does it mean that Jesus Christ took on human nature? It means he took on a full human nature, right? Um, not distinct or dissimilar from human nature. He took on human nature. Not a special human nature, but human nature. So this is something that people often get wrong. They say, well, where does where does the human nature of Jesus come from in the incarnation? and I think most people actually think this, it's like sort of specially created in the lab, right? It's sort of like, he's like a test tube baby that just gets uh, sort of implanted in the womb of his mother and that's that. That is not what Christians believe, by the way. We actually believe that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, obtained a full human nature from his mother. Full stop. Which is glorious, right? Because, you know, every human being since Adam and Eve at least uh, received their human nature from their mother and father, but you know, visibly from their mother, um, and so that's a re- really key thing: is that um, there is no distinction between Jesus Christ and another human being. Right? He's not just sort of like a special. He doesn't have a special human nature. Is the point? Right? He is human like us. He is one of us. Um, okay. descended from the same people we are. That's the wild part, right? Like he's one of us. Um, and in fact uh, the Athanasian Creed says that he's one of us as concerning our nature essentially Um, the savior to be the savior and redeemer of the world uh, those two words largely means some of the same thing but that this salvation means that there's something wrong with the world that has to be fixed and set to right Um, redeemer is something like this you're going to take what's there and exchange it for something elevated and better the only mediator. What's a mediator? Any Latin people around here? Latin types? Yeah, one who stands between. Run, who stands in the middle? Um, and Jesus Christ is the perfect mediator between God and man. Why? Because he's both, right? So perfect um, between God and fallen humanity. Um, and it's that it's that lack of fallenness in the human nature of Jesus Christ that makes him able to be the mediator between God and man. Okay. What does Jesus mean? Jesus means God saves and is taken from the Hebrew name Yeshua or Joshua. In Jesus, God has come to save the world from the power of sin and death. Um, you know, M- Mary would not have called Jesus Jesus, right? Uh, in fact, most Christians have not used that word, really. They use something like Yesu or something like that. But Mary would have called him Yeshua. Um, and that was an intentional thing. Right? The angel said, You will call his name Jesus. Well, why? Because he's to be the savior of his people. Just like his ancestor Joshua was leading the people out of captivity in the wilderness into the land of promise. So there's some typology going on here with his name, right? It's referring to Joshua leading the people out of the, their kind of wanderings and into the land of promise. Um, It simply says that God has come to save us from the power of sin and death. What does Christ mean? Christos is the Greek term for the Hebrew title Messiah, meaning the anointed one. Old Testament kings, priests, and prophets were anointed with oil. Jesus the Christ was anointed by the Holy Spirit to perfectly fulfill these roles, and he rules now as prophet, priest, and king over his church and all creation. Um, this is really a fun little, you know, uh, kind of scholarly bit, but, but it's good, you know, good substance for preaching and teaching that Jesus Christ is both prophet, priest, and king. I shouldn't say both, but is there a way to say both but for three things? He's all those things, right? <laughs> He's all those things. There should be. We should make up a word that's both for three things. Um, but, but this speaks to something really key, right? If you look at the Old Testament, you'll see that uh, you have figures in the Old Testament who are two of those things, but not all three. Um, and Jesus moves into in, and obtains this threefold office, um, which is that of prophet, priest, and king. Um, you know, this works not only um, in terms of speaking about Old Testament typologies, which are sort of unfulfilled, right? Like think about David for a minute. David is understood to be a prophet and king, and only slightly in a weird, imitative way, a priest. Remember? David puts on the ephod and he dances before the ark, right? What's going on here? Is he a priest? kind of <laughs> like he's not really but he's doing it right because there's been this sort of failure on the part of the priests to do what they're supposed to do right the priests have stopped doing service before the ark of the covenant that's the reality and so david's going to step in and do it um that's what's going on in the in, in the accounts in, in, uh, in uh, 1 and uh and first and second samuel uh but it really does speak to this thing of anointed one right Um, chrism, charismata, refers not only to oil but to gifts. Um, Christus actually means something like oily, really, um, covered in oil. Um, And so this refers, not, and and it is kind of a double meaning, right? Because it's it's both oil and gifts, because in Greek they're the same. Um, For the Athenians, their outstanding gift that they had received from the gods was what? That made them wealthy. It was the gift of olive oil. Right? They figured out how to make olive oil and it made them fabulously wealthy. It led to the flourishing of Athenian culture because they saw it as a gift from the gods. And so they use similar words regarding oil, right? Um, that's really where this comes from. Um, I love this too because the two names that we use for Jesus are one's Greek, the other one's Hebrew. Which actually speaks to something really important, which is that in Jesus Christ, both Greek and Gentile, both Jew and Greek, which is like Jew and Gentile, uh, are brought together in one, uh, in one uh, body. Okay. One more, okay? And then we'll just kind of read the next one. Why is Jesus called the Father's only Son? Jesus alone is God the Son, co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He alone is the image of the invisible Father, the one who makes the Father known. He is now and forever will be incarnate as a human bearing his God-given human name. The Father created and now rules all things in heaven and earth through Jesus Christ our Lord. So you want to know the fun part about the gospel? Like, here it is. Jesus does not take on human nature only to throw it away as something gross and icky, like a meat suit that he took on for a time, right? What does he do? He keeps it. <laughs> He keeps it, and he takes it with him, because it's him, to the right hand of the Father, where he lives and reigns. Okay. So Christian teaching is that there is a human being at the right hand of the Father, exercising mastery over all creation as a human being, and as God. See, do you see what's going on here? So to be made in the image of God, meaning we're made to be like Jesus, means what? That's our Place, right? That's what we were made for, is to be um, uh, sort of enthroned with God. Um, I love what this says uh, here about um, this. Uh, it's, it's a quotation from Colossians, uh, Colossians 1, uh, that Jesus is the image of the invisible Father. In the Greek, that's, he is the icon of the invisible Father. Has anyone ever seen God? John asks this question, or actually answers the question. He says in, the first, in John 1. Which is, no one has ever seen God. The only Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. So, part of the thing that I want you to really understand is that it's Jesus at the right hand of the Father that is making himself known through his body, the church, constantly. Um, That's what's going on, like right now, um, throughout the world. What do you mean when you call Jesus Christ Lord? I acknowledge Jesus' divine authority over the church and all creation, over all societies and their leaders, and over every aspect of my life, both public and private. I surrender my entire life to him and seek to live in a way that pleases him. Um, I usually say this just about every year, and I, and I say it because it's impactful and, and, and kind of, uh, well, it's a good racy theological statement, but, but it's this. Jesus is Lord is a way of saying that all other earthly authority is both legitimate and illegitimate at the same time. Like, is the president of the United States the president of the United States? I'm not going to ask you that question. <laughs> but, but yeah, usually. Uh, yes, I think so. Uh, is that power and authority also illegitimate? Yes. Um, because look what's going on. This Jesus is Lord is the most ancient of Christian creeds. It's found right in the pages of Scripture. It is a contradiction... Of the very words that are used on Latin on on Roman curious, on Roman currency. It's the creed of the Roman Empire. Is what Caesar is lord of all. Um, it's also what was what did Caesar Caesar mean by calling himself lord? What did he mean? Was he sort of content to just be a human being? No, no, no. He's a divinized human being. Is what. Is what's meant by that? Yeah, he's Lord. That's what it means. Um, it's not only that, but look, the word Lord in in Hebrew is Adonai, which is used as a covering over of the the four letter word for God in the Old Testament. So when you read in the Old Testament the Lord, you're reading a translation of the the Hebrew word Yod He Yahweh. Right? I say this fearful that I'll be hit by lightning, but but I say it anyway. Uh, which is over. Which is there's a covering over of that word with the word Adonai. And what essentially happens is you get, you get these two kind of coming together. And what's being said in the New Testament is that Jesus is the God of the Old Testament. Okay, So it's saying two things at the same. Jesus is God of the secular world. Jesus is God of the Old Testament. The two come together. Um, and so uh, that's that. Lord of all. Okay. We'll pick up next week.